Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast, where we let light shine out of darkness. With your host, Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist. Hello there, and welcome back to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and your host. Thanks for being here. It's good to be with all of you. I love knowing that there's a community of people out there committed to healing and wanting to improve their lives and their relationships. And I'd love to connect with you as many ways as I can. In fact, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm posting regular content on there, and I'd love to have you join me over there. I'll put links in the show notes to both my Instagram and Facebook pages so you can find those easily. And I also have a website where I have a blog and post regular content. I write a weekly relationship column, of course, this podcast. I've created online courses and workshops to support you as well. So you can check that out at jeffstewart.com. And if you don't know how to spell my name, that's okay. Most people don't. So you can just go to lovingmarriage.com and I'll also put a link in the show notes for that. So I love creating content. I love connecting with all of you. Drop me a line. Let me know what you need. I'll respond. I'd love to hear what's helpful for you, what kinds of things you need what questions you might have. We're all in this together. It's messy, difficult work, but there's just some great resources out there and I definitely want to be part of the solution. So once again, thanks for being here. So let's talk about today's guest and topic. This is definitely one of the most personal topics that I've covered for me personally because it's something that I'm working through right now. Chad Ford is my guest today and he wrote a book called Dangerous Love which is a book about how to navigate conflict with other people and how to do it in a way where we aren't afraid and we're not dehumanizing other people and making things worse or staying stuck in our own anger and resentment. And I love his book so much. I read the book and I immediately contacted him and he was great about coming on here and meeting with all of us. And it's just stuff that I'm working through. You know, I'm in conflict as well with different people in my life at different times and I've got to figure out how to have peace in my heart and not get stuck and not treat people like they're less than me. And boy, there's just some challenging things that we get caught up in as humans. And I certainly don't have a free pass on that. I have to do my work just like all of us do. And I just really love Chad's work. He he gives a really clear roadmap about how to get out of that stuck place in our heart when we're at odds with somebody. And especially when we've been betrayed by a loved one or by somebody close to us, someone who's injured us or abused us or betrayed us, boy, what do you do with those feelings, right? How do you respond to somebody in a way that still maintains their dignity and their humanity while still having healthy boundaries with them? Sometimes it doesn't make sense to go back into those relationships, but if we don't really clear out and do that work to find peace in our hearts and see them accurately and clearly and understand them as humans, then we actually stay bonded to them in a negative way in our hearts and actually stay in a relationship with them even though we may never speak to them again. So this is really important work if you've been injured. This is really important work if you just have conflict. And I think all of us do. I don't think anybody gets away with living life and families and working and having kids and just relating to others without having some kind of conflict somewhere along the way. Chad is a international mediator, conflict resolution specialist. He's someone that's been doing this for a very long time. He's traveled to the Middle East more than 50 times and worked out all kinds of things over there, trying to help people find peace, to find you know, solutions to their conflicts. He's worked with lots of high-level groups that have dealt with conflict, businesses, corporations, the police force, uh, Black Lives Matter. He's also created a course at BYU-Hawaii where he's a professor there That's one of the most popular courses on campus, and it's called the Intercultural Peace Building. And he has spent his professional career speaking, consulting, facilitating for Arbinger Institute, for governments, NGOs, corporations, and others trying to help people resolve conflict and find peace. And he's just such an effective teacher and communicator and just a great human being. I just loved talking to him. And his book and his information is really, truly life-changing stuff. I think you'll be really touched by it. So pull out your notepad and take great notes. I think that you'll find that this is actually very actionable and helpful information that will make a difference in your life and the life of those that you love and that you struggle with. So let me jump into my interview now 
with Chad Ford. Okay, well, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast, Chad. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on your show. Aloha. Yeah, aloha. I'm excited to visit with you today. I'm almost actually finished with your book. I have just a little bit left to finish it, but I'll tell you what, I have never wanted to put a book down so many times in my life. (laughs) I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm going to assume it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And I'll tell you why. It's challenged and pushed me harder than almost any book I've read in recent memory. And so, yeah, when I picked it up, I've read some Arbinger stuff before, but your book is, it really pushed my buttons in a good way, really challenged and made me rethink a lot of what I, what I believe and even what I do in terms of dealing with conflict and my own fears and things like that. So strong work. I'm just really thrilled to have this as a resource for people and I've just loved reading it. So, well, thanks. I think that is the hopeful response actually to, to this. It should be hard. That's why it's called dangerous love. Right? right, It should feel dangerous as you're reading it. You should want to throw the book across the room <laughs> several times, but it shouldn't be so dangerous that you don't pick it back up and finish it. Exactly. And that's, that was exactly my experience. And that's what I want my listeners to know. Like, If you start reading his book and you feel like, oh, I can't do this, put it down. It's okay. I did that. And then I picked it up the next day and I took a deep breath and I kept reading it because it really surprised me how much it challenged. So let's, for the, obviously I'm going to, you know, we can't review the entire book in a podcast here. So I hope all of you will go out and get a copy of it and read it and share it with those you love because I think it's a game changer. It's one of those books. But Chad, let's talk about this whole concept of dangerous love. You jump right into the book with a really tough story that I think is a great attention grabber, but really illustrates how dangerous love can help us work through what seems like impossible situations. Yeah. And I did that intentionally because I, what I know is that that very first statement that I quote from Miriam right at the beginning of chapter one, but what if he's evil, is the pushback. People will hear these principles and towards the people that they like or that they generally get along with, they'll say, this is really great. This is really important. I work with people all over the world. They'll say, this is foundational to my faith in Judaism or Islam or you know what have you or Christianity. But then when it gets to that person, that is really difficult for them. It won't work. Right, it's not going to work here. You don't know my mother-in-law the way I know my mother-in-law, or you don't know my wayward teenager the way that I do, or my ex-spouse, or someone in my community that's a rival, or this boss at work that is just driving me crazy. And that's why I wrote the book. I didn't write the book about how to solve easy conflict because we actually do that every day. Most people are functioning enough that they're collaboratively problem-solving on lots of issues on a day-to-day basis. I'm interested in what happens in the moments when the collaboration fails. And no matter what I try to do to start it up again, it continues to fail. Those are the ones that I'm interested in. As a conflict mediator, of course, those are the only cases I get. No one pays me to come in and help them do stuff that that is easy. right? They pay me to help them do stuff that is hard. But I think the biggest surprise that they have, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is, I don't do it for them. I can't fix their problems for them. I can't reconcile for them. All I can do is give them some guidance about what will be helpful and what won't be helpful. And then it's up to them to have to have the courage to go and do that. And and that's why I was confident that I could write a book about it because I'm giving the same counsel that I would give my clients. I'm giving the same tools to you, but ultimately it's you that has to do it. I can't do it for you. Yeah, absolutely. And and this concept of, of it being dangerous, can talk more about that. Because I, I know I'd heard on the previous podcast where you talked to Richie Norton about the title and how you got some pushback on the title and people really struggled with it. I'd love to hear more about that because I yeah, think it's so interesting. Yeah, the publisher especially, they hated the title. I think one, because those two words are strange partners. Yeah. Yeah. And and two, the word they actually hated was love, less than dangerous. Dangerous sells books, right? <laughs> but lo- love, love actually interestingly doesn't. Yeah. And especially sort of in the market, I think that they were hoping the book would sell. And I had to make a strong pitch on this that I want to deliberately use love, even though I understand that that word is often misunderstood mm-hmm. and that there's a multiple definitions for it. So I'm not talking about romantic love, nor am I talking about the love that means like. I'm talking about the love that means that I see your needs, wants, and desires so clearly that they matter as much to me as my own, even if I don't like them, even if I don't agree with them. That's the sort of, 
agape love, if you will, that is needed to get past these really difficult conflicts. And the the problem with that is that's scary. Mm -hmm. That requires massive vulnerability. It requires us to step out of our comfort zones. And most of us, not all of us, but most of us grow up with a reaction to conflict that evokes a fear response in us almost right away, that sort of fight or flight response. That is the the emotion that we have. And so now I'm asking you to don't run, nor do I want you to fight, but I want you to be with this person. I want you to roll up your sleeves. I want you to walk beside this person, no matter how difficult they're being, and work and work and work until you come up with a solution that works for both of you. People say all the time, but that's crazy. It'll take forever. It's going to be a waste of time. They're going to take advantage of me. They're going to mistreat me in the process. I don't think I can I don't think I can last. Again, you don't know them the way that I know them. And because of that, what I'm asking them to do feels very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so it's when we put those two things together that I want it to feel hard because it is hard. I want it to feel that it's it's risky and it that and, and it's going to require vulnerability because it does. But I also am giving people advice about what will actually be transformative in their relationship in their lives, as opposed to all the other methods that we use that tend to actually sort of make things worse or, or bury it under the rug or what have you. Yeah. And as I really was working through your book, I mean, I work a lot with sexual addiction, betrayal, trauma, people that are, you know, getting abused, you know, emotionally, physically, sexually, just some really heavy stuff. And a lot of these people, you know, choose and need to choose to opt out of the relationship entirely. And I was listening really carefully in your book for, you know, what do you do in situations like that? Because I I know that this book is primarily written for, at least it seems like it's written for relationships where we're trying to work through something together and stay in relationship, right? But there's obviously situations, and you do address it in the book later on about where we do need to walk away. But what would you say about situations where somebody is saying, no, literally this person is dangerous. They have abused me, crossed lines, and I can't be in relationship with them anymore. I think there's two things I would say. The first of all, when I say dangerous, I don't mean literally dangerous. Like if your physical or mental well-being is at risk in this relationship with the person, I'm not asking you to suck it up or stick it out. Drawing boundaries can be one of the most loving things that we can do in a relationship to protect ourselves as well as actually to protect others from their worst instincts, mm. right? When I, when I think about boundaries, I think of think of it as a mutual thing. It's one being put into place to protect me, but oftentimes when people are mistreating us, that's toxic on them as well. Totally, It's absolutely corroding their souls as well. And so taking away that opportunity for that person to engage in that behavior with me until they get the professional help that they need is actually a loving act. It's not a hateful act. As much as they may protest and as much as they may say, that's unfair or why are you doing this to me or whatever, I think when we see people clearly, right, we can recognize they have a problem. And this problem is so toxic to both myself and to them that I have to change the very nature of this relationship in a way to prevent that from happening again. And so that part I'll say at the beginning. But the other thing I'll say is this idea to me that I cannot be in relationship with a person is something that I don't totally agree with. Right. I think we're always in relationship. And I, I quote Martin Buber in this sort of I, thou, I, it, and this idea that Buber had, this philosopher, that we're always in relationship and it's an I hyphen thou or an I hyphen it. In other words, I, I can't ever be myself without thinking about myself in a relationship to other people. And so there is no self, Buber says. There's only myself in relation. And he'll start with, where did you learn the language to even describe yourself? You learned it from others. Where did you learn what is right and wrong? We learn it from others. We watch it from example. Like we're, we're deeply connected, but we can be either connected in anguish or we can be connected in love. And so one of the other things that I work with people on is as far as physical boundaries go, I'm blocking you from my phone. We're not going to have any physical contact. You're not allowed to call me, contact me, whatever. I can do all of that and still be deeply connected to a person as an it or a thou. Absolutely. And if if I do it as an it, Mm -hmm. if I do it out of revenge, if I do it out of spite, if I do it out of hate, I carry that with me in ways that affect all of the other relationships around me and actually affect my well-being as well. 
you know, Bishop Desmond Tutu at the height of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you know, talked about this idea that there's no future without forgiveness and that is as painful as things have been in the past, I have to find a way to make peace with it and move forward. Yeah. And so at the same time, so if I see them as a thou, you know, that's, I see them as a human being. Human beings make mistakes, sometimes terrible mistakes. Human beings get addictions. Human beings um, fall. Their behavior can be deplorable. And I can see that while still seeing the essence and value of their humanity and wishing them help, wishing them the best, wishing that they are able to sort of make those changes in my life. And behaviorally, I can do all of that and have no physical contact with them, no, you know, no talking on the phone and what have you. And and that to me is where some of the healing comes, is that I change both how I see the person. So I'm in an I-thou relationship with them. And then I make the appropriate adjustments on what needs to happen behaviorally in that relationship to keep that going. And to me, that is what we're talking about in dangerous love. So what is dangerous for someone in that situation is, no, I'm not asking you to stay in an abusive relationship. No, I'm not asking you to unblock them from your social media or whatever. I'm not asking for any of that. But I will challenge you in the book to fundamentally change the way that you see them as a way of both healing you and as an invitation to them to reflect their humanity back in a way that may actually invite them to make the changes that they actually need to make. Okay. I'm going to go back and re-listen to that probably a hundred times because <laughs> that is so profound because I, what I, and that, that idea has such a huge impact on what, how we guide people in my role as a therapist and even as a parent with our kids and other people we're counseling with that essentially you're saying if we're going to set a boundary, which sometimes is necessary for our benefit and their benefit, this relationship needs to be protected in a healthy way. We need to protect ourselves from toxic behaviors. But there's a sequence to it. You're saying that we have to see them as a human first, because leaving before we do that is still going to bind us to them in a really painful, and we're not going to really ever get rid of them like maybe what our goal would be. And the goal isn't to get rid of them as a it. The goal is to connect to them deeply even if we need to leave. Yeah. And look, I would say, look, sometimes I may have to leave before I can get to that space. If I'm in the middle of an abusive relationship right now, it may be too much to ask you as you are currently being abused to see the humanity of the person that's abusing you. So yeah. For sure. It, it, For sure. Yeah, it may absolutely be the case that step one isn't, is it, that might actually be leaving. But I think what I'm saying is as far as the healing process goes, as far as actually getting about where I need to get about in my own life, that next step will actually guide us in what our more permanent boundaries need to be, what my relationship needs to look like in the future. And, and I actually, look, I'm a proponent because I think often boundaries are only used in the context of, of sort of physical or emotional abuse or violence. I'm actually a big proponent that we don't stigmatize it that way. We should all have boundaries in our life to promote healthy relationships. Yeah. And I actually think that we do. I think like we have boundaries as parents with our children, for example, about what are appropriate and what are inappropriate interactions with our children. We have boundaries with our spouse constantly. So if you think about yep. with a partner, what we're going to do with maybe members of the opposite sex, for example, or you know what have you, we have those boundaries in place to actually protect the relationship. And to help it go right. And so I, I really want to destigmatize boundaries as well, because boundaries are a way of promoting healthy relationships, I think. But it's, it's around those physical sorts of things. As far as emotional boundaries go, as far as seeing your humanity or loving you, that's where I would argue we shouldn't draw the boundary there. I love that. I love that distinction. Yeah. And so it's, it's almost like we boundary up our hearts and our ability to see somebody clearly as a way of self-protecting, but we really suffer a lot when we do that. And we never we really do. get unbound from them is what you're saying, right? Yeah, we're, we're just bound in anguish, yeah, right? Exactly. Instead of love. And the interesting thing is so much of what happens to us in these cases is out of our control. Yeah. We're not making those choices for people that physically or emotionally abuse us. I know oftentimes they try to blame the victim and try to make the victim believe that they're the reasons for this, but I, you know, and I'm sure a lot of your therapy is <laughs> unwinding a lot of that, you know, guilt that sort of comes with that. But that part of how I see another person is something that is always under my control. I can't control another person or their actions or their behaviors or the way that they see me even, but I can control the way that I see them. 
And, and I think that that's, there's something deeply empowering about that, Jeff. I think there's something that actually, you know, in the most classic mediation text called the promise of mediation, after years of research, they came to two sorts of ideas about people's conflict stories and narratives. One is that their stories are, are self-absorbed. So all they can see is how another person impacts me. They can't at all see how I impact them. They lose that ability in conflict, right? All I can see is the impact on me, which is not helpful because I'm missing 50% of what's happening. But the other thing, it's weak. I feel helpless. I feel like there's nothing I can do about mm. it. That conflict is something that's happening to me. It's something external to me. And because I can't control them, I can't control it. And I feel out of control. And mediation is really, and I think therapy is a lot of this too, though I'm not a therapist, but my wife is, is, is about empowering people to get some of that back. Yes. Um, to, to feel like they get some of that control back. And one way to do that is actually getting back in control of how I see another person and detaching it from how they see me or detaching it from me having to change them to change my situation. Yeah. So how, how, what would you say about what is the connection then between when we devalue another person, why does that generate more fear in us? Why does that generate more powerlessness in us? when we sort of use that devaluing as a way to protect ourselves, but it seems like it makes it worse. Yeah. Well, the first thing is that there actually are people. And so I have to respond to the dissonance of seeing Mm. and treating a non-human or a human as a non-human by going through a a pretty powerful process of self-deception and justification, which is toxic to us, right? I have to come up with a bunch of justifications why it's okay for me to see and treat this person not as a person. And by the way, it's not just an abusive relationships we do this. We do this in everyday life. You know, when we see a homeless person on the street that's suffering, it's uncomfortable to watch another human being suffer. It's uncomfortable for us. So our reaction often is to either look away, to try to ignore that they're there, or to tell ourselves stories about why they're poor, right? They must be on drugs, or they've made really bad choices, or they want to be poor. Or the urban legend that always exists out there that actually they're millionaires and they collect so much money panhandling every day <laughs> that they go back to their mansion. And you know whatever, we tell ourselves all these stories and, and what we're telling ourselves is it's okay to ignore the, this humanity of this person right now because they deserve it to some extent, right? Or I'm too busy. I mean, we have lots of different justifications. And when we do that, we start to engage in a process that becomes pretty addictive. Oh, I think one of the most addictive processes we have is this need to feel right and to justify any sort of belief or behavior that we have in a way that makes us continue to feel right. And we'll do it at the expense of relationships. We'll destroy relationships. And in fact, just today, I wrote a blog about how to talk politics with family members mm. using dangerous love. Yeah, And you know, one of my points is that we become so wound up in our political beliefs that we can actually use them to justify completely detaching from family members, abusing family members, you know, verbally, emotionally, and what have you. And we know at a certain level that's wrong. But when we do it, we justify it by, well, they're deceived, or they don't believe the right thing, or I can't believe they don't support this, or what have you. And so there's this way where we tell ourselves that we're being right, that we are right, we're right on the facts, we're right about this or that, but we're deeply wrong in the relationship. And when we start that pattern in our life, it becomes addictive to us. And this need to feed that justification means that I'll view any action that you do, whether does it feed my justification or does it threaten my justification? And one of the things that I appreciate you about, Jeff, is I think my book was written to threaten people's justifications for a lot of things, which is why at times you're wanting to throw the book across the room, right? right? That's right. And when you pick it up and read it again, you know, I'm not feeding it anymore. It's breaking that addiction a little bit. And I had to write the book very carefully, in part because you have to be careful about how you do that, how you approach self-deception, right? In a certain way. And I think that, you know, for all of us, what then begins to happen when I'm promoting this idea that I have to be right is that anybody in my life that is a counterpoint to that is now a threat to me. Hmm. And what I need to do is either get them on my side and convince them that I'm right, or I need to cast them off because they're a threat to me. And so I start to see the world in a way where you're either with me or you're against me. And I know you're with me whether 
or you're against me, whether you will feed my justifications or whether you'll challenge my justifications. And that starts to become a smaller and smaller and smaller world um, over time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it leads to loneliness and it leads to disconnection and it leads to feeling like the whole world's against us. And it leads us to a place that just isn't healthy or good, which is scary. Yeah. You know, and I think we need to, I'll speak for myself. I appreciate it because I needed to clean some house there. I, I, you know, again, I was pretty smug thinking that I was, you know, running pretty optimal here. You know, things were going pretty good. My relationships were good. And all of a sudden you start pushing my buttons by describing things and even sharing a lot of your own experiences with this and your own struggles with it, which is, I think, broke down some of my defensiveness, by the way. And I started to really take inventory and look at where I was, you know, lying to myself about some relationships. And I think your book is doing exactly what it was designed to do. And I think it's such important work because you're right. We lie to ourselves. And I did not, I did not expect you to use that word addictive, by the way, <laughs> about how addictive this is. And I, but I see it when you say that I'm like, right, because it mood alters us. It allows us to have this counterfeit peace, but we have to keep feeding it in order to stay in it. Think about why social media is addictive. Yeah. And why the algorithms are written the way that they are, right? Because it's feeding us. It finds out what we like. And it feeds us and feeds us and feeds us what it is that pushes those buttons for us, right? And then when something pops up on our feed that we disagree with, our reaction is to block it, to turn it off, uh, to get it off our feed, right? Because it just disgusts me. I can't tell you how many people have told me you know, in the past year, whether it's because of the Black Lives Matter or because of the election or whatever, I just block people. I've got people off my feed. I just challenge them. Well, that's interesting. These were your friends at some point that you, you know, you added them. Why are you blocking them now? And the answer is they're not feeding my justification. Um, right? These friends are really vehicles to me to tell me that I'm right. And anybody that's going to post anything that tells me the opposite of that, I don't want to hear that. I just don't want to see it um, anymore. And then what happens in the likes, right? Like I'm scrolling, like how many people like what I have to say? How many people are pressing the heart a button on what I have to say? It's all addictive because it's all feeding our justifications. We are creating this image of ourselves and how we want to be seen in the world and heard. And we are fueled by how many people like or repost or talk about the things that we want. So this is like just a real world thing. I, I was talking about what's happening behind the scenes, yeah. but this is actually the real world manifestation of this in social media and why it's so hard to check that we're not checking our phones every few minutes. We're looking for justification <laughs> from our Ugh. phones and our partners or the people that we're having dinner with might not be giving it to us in the moment because our kids are being annoying or whatever, but some stranger is liking my post. <laughs> <laughs> and give it back to me. And, and by the way, and I want to—I I think this is a really important point, and you touched on it. I've studied this my whole life, and I'm not immune to it. Right. Some of right. the stories that I'm telling in the book happened a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Some of them I wrote literally as I was putting the final touches on the book, like the one with my teenage daughter, who I found out was dating. Oh, I love uh, that you know, one. By, <laughs> but behind my back. I mean, I literally told the publisher, hold off on the presses. This just happened. I think this is a good story. I got to put it in. Yeah. And my editor was laughing at me. He's like, you know, like you're writing the book on this right now. and You just made all the mistakes that you talked about in the book. And I'm, you know, my answer to that is, yeah, because I can't, you know, that's part of being human, mm-hmm. right? A lot of these processes that we're talking about are just part of being a human being. And I'm, and I am one. And d- despite my education and despite what I go and do and help, I'm as prone to this as anyone else. But what I like to think about what it's done for me is it's attached a smoke alarm in my, my brain. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't stop fires from catching inside of me, but it does alert me when the smoke is there. And as you see in the, in the story, even with my teenage daughter, I'm much quicker to go and resolve the issue in a constructive way as opposed to pursuing a path that's going to create more and more division and more and more destruction. I'm in the relationship. And so I can't promise you after you read this book that you won't have conflict because you will. Um, You'll continue to have conflict no matter how many times you read it, no matter how deeply you believe it, no matter how much you practice it. But what it will do is get put a smoke alarm in your brain to sort of recognize, wait a minute, I'm doing this wrong. I'm seeing this. I'm seeing them falsely. What were those steps again? Mm -hmm. Uh, Right? To sort of help this go right. And the more we do that over time, the more we start to find ourselves reacting to conflict in a more constructive way right from the get-go, as opposed to the more destructive way that I think we've been a bit conditioned to respond to it. 
Yeah. And it like, you know, using the smoke alarm metaphor, it also, I felt like for me, started to provide some of those illuminated exit signs to kind of help me find my way out of my own way. You know, because what was interesting is, as I was listening to this, I was listening to your book on Audible. So I feel like in some ways I'm still listening to the book as I'm talking to you right now, because you narrate it. So it's pretty great. But I was listening to it and, and thinking about my own, some of the relationships where I've got some conflict, I'm working through some things, like the arguments I would have in my head, right? Where I'm not even talking to other people. I'm just in my head going through that justification, going through my own arguments, going through my own self-deception. Of course, I understand better what I'm doing now. But I noticed that it started to soften and change the way I was thinking about them as I tried to really embrace their humanity. I really started to really try and see different. Like I just stopped wanting to argue with them in an imaginal realm in my head. And that was almost instantaneous. Those results came without me even lifting a finger in terms of changing any kind of an actual dynamic with them. It was powerful. It's so interesting. And Jeff, you know this as a therapist, our brain isn't a muscle but in, in certain ways, it, it kind of operates like one, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, there's things that I can do to control my brain, but we often don't think about it. So, you know, I'll, you know, if I want to improve my cardio, I'll go out running, right? If I want to improve my strength, I'll go out and lift, you know, lift weights. But when it comes to thinking about how to sharpen, sharpen our mindfulness or our awareness or ability to be present or, or our ability to think through things, we often don't take a lot of time and attention to that. And, and one of the things I do in my workshops is I show a brain scan of someone who has post-traumatic stress disorder. And it shows the sort of neural pathways and it's illustrated in different colors. It's sort of a computer generation of it. And you can sort of see that, okay, there's some neural pathways, but a lot of them are connecting to the same part of the brain. And it seems like there's some ruts. There's some like deep, deep ruts, right? Where the brain is kind of going to go every time. We give it a certain stimuli, it's going to go the same direction every time. And then the next brain scan I show is someone who's been practicing a lot of mindfulness, a lot of meditation, you know, yoga, someone who's like really, really worked on exercise in the brain and the brain scan lights up. It's just like amazing sort of what happens. And the interesting thing is, well, obviously, as you know, some of that can be chemical and some of that, you know, can be mental health issues where there's biological causes for that. There is a lot we can do with our brains. There's a lot we can do to open ourselves up and to restructure the way that we think as well, which is why there's just therapy and not just drugs, right? Like the cognitive behavioral therapy or all the different sort of methodologies that you're using right. are also helping us retrain the way that we think and work through things. And so, you know, one of the points I try to make in our book is relationships require intentionality. And we are romanticized relationships in a lot of ways to say that I fall in love or they're my best friend and everything should just be easy. And if it's not easy, if something is constantly we're bumping up against, then it's probably the wrong relationship for me. And I don't believe that that's true in most of the cases. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I really hesitate sometimes is people will jump very quickly to, okay, they're mistreating me, is making a distinction between emotional and physical abuse and in some ways, the way that we mistreat each other just naturally in relationships, which unfortunately happens even in non-abusive cases. And instead of writing off the relationship in those cases, thinking about intentionality around nurturing relationship and, and what it actually takes. And so much of that is actually not behavioral. It's what's happening up here in the brain. And so you just described it perfectly, right? I'm upset with somebody. I start going through those justifications why I'm right. Actually, that's a great smoke alarm moment, right? Yeah, yeah. If I'm sitting by myself and I'm thinking about all the ways that I'm right and the other person is wrong and they're not even with me or they're not even in the room, they're nowhere there, that's a smoke alarm for me that something actually is, if there's a fire going on that I need to put out, not Absolutely. fan the flames. Right, right. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which is kind of what we do the longer we obsess with it. And then you start to deliberately start to think, okay, what are positive aspects of this person? What, are, what have they done in the past? What are they struggling with? What are their challenges right now? Are they having a bad day? I start asking myself all the questions that I don't ask myself right in self-deception. And in self-deception, I ask myself one question, how are they impacting me? Mm. Right? In this sort of inward mindset, in an outward mindset sort of way, I'm asking how am I impacting them, but also what is just going on in their lives that may even have nothing to do with me? Like, what is their lived reality or world mm -hmm. like? And immediately when our brain starts going there, things start to soften, mm -hmm. um, right? Things start to get clearer. 
in ways that often lead us to that illuminated exit sign on the way out. But it's sometimes that requires intentionality and deliberateness. Like when I notice myself doing that, I have to stop myself. I have to take a deep breath. Maybe I go meditate for a minute. I put on music or whatever. And I start the process of deliberately starting to think about the things that my brain doesn't want to think about in the moment, right? The things that are uncomfortable for me to think about this person right now because I'm upset or angry. Right. Right. And that moment, I mean, I think what you're saying is that that moment is when we disconnect from their humanity, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. that crossroad. It's like, it's a very deliberate choice as far as an exercise in our brain. It's like, will I see them as a human that is affected by lots of things, including me? Or will I tend to dehumanize them and only focus on what they're doing to me and eliminating anything else in the story? That doesn't give me justification. Right, right. (laughs) And uh, I use that analogy a lot like Instagram as well, because so many, I work with a lot of young people and so Mm -hmm. many are using Instagram. You know, Instagram is not candid photos of people. We all know what really goes on. Mm -hmm. I've taken 400 shots, then I've put it through (laughs) multiple filters until I look as amazing as possible. If there's 25 people on the beach, I get the perfect angle where it doesn't look like there's anybody on the beach and I'm alone, or I crop them out or I Photoshop them out later or whatever. And I, you know, I do all of this stuff to get the provoke the response that I want. And some of the just the most potent justification I talk about in the book is actually other people. And so I tell a story, a conflict narrative in a way to provoke a reaction in other people as well. So what I want is my family and friends to tell me you're 100% right. I don't know how you deal with that person. I can't believe you live with that person. If I were you, I would have left 20 minutes ago and all that just fuels our fire, right? And we're telling the story in a way that does that. And I know it's really hard as a mediator and I'm sure as a therapist because what is the most potent justification? If my therapist tells me, oh man, man, I'm 100% right. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell everybody in the world and my therapist said, this is exactly what I should do. Or as a mediator, right? Because I'm supposed to be a third party neutral. The mediator believes that they're totally wrong. I'm totally right, mm-hmm. right? And so we're we're crafting these stories again as a tool to get justification back. And so you know, part of that internally is: Am I telling the whole story? Do I know the whole story? Because the answer probably is we don't. And I love it when people come in and they tell me, and I said this, and then they thought this. <laughs> wow, it's amazing. You know, in conflict. We become mind readers. We know exactly what they were thinking. We know exactly how they were judging us in that moment. Did they say it? Well, they didn't say it, but I, I, you know, I know. I could tell. I could tell. <laughs> and you know, my, my reaction to that is, no, you can't. In mm-hmm. fact, you're actually in the worst possible place to be able to actually tell right then because we're so blinded in the moment that we can't tell. And it's only when we open ourselves up to the humanity, their humanity, that we're going to be able to tell. And by the way, seeing someone as a person does not mean that I just see their strengths. I can also see their weaknesses. I can see their flaws. I can see their dangerous behavior. I can see how their behavior is impacting me and other people, but I see it clearly as opposed to see it in a biased way that only is taking into account how it affects me. And that to me is makes all the difference in what I'm going to do next and how I'm going to be both helpful to myself, but also in reality, be helpful to them. Oh, it expands all the options too of what's possible, right? Like I think when we see people as it's or as non-human, it only seems like there's like, like you said, there's only really one or two things. We either completely ignore them, pretend they don't exist, right? Or we just keep generating the narrative of how they're hurting us. They're in our way. They're in our way. Or the third one, which is sort of the human being is a vehicle to me. I only care about you to the extent that you're helpful to me. Mm. That's a, an interesting way that on the surface seems like you're seeing their humanity, but is actually really objectifying as well. And you know, we joke here, I'm at a university where only a few students have cars. And I'll ask them, how many of you are friends with someone solely because they have a car oh. and they can get you around? And you know, you'll see the sheepy's hands comes up. <laughs> and the minute their car breaks down, you pretty much are done with them. And again, the hands sort of come up. Mm. You know, we engage in that behavior as well sometimes when we're objectifying people. If you're good for me, if you're giving me what I want, we're great. The second that you're not, we're not. That's a sign actually that I was probably not seeing you as a person in the first place. I was just seeing you as an object, just a good object, a helpful object Mm -hmm. um, to me. 
Right. And I can tell myself that I'm not being aggressive or a jerk or, you know, ignoring you. Oh man, there's some hard feedback there. I think we're all guilty of that at some level, right? We've, we've all fallen into that. I think, you know, again, if we, if we're all susceptible to treating others as it or dehumanizing others, then we'll end up in one of those three areas at some point. Mm. <laughs> I learned this really painfully with my teenagers. Yeah. Because as a father, I, I'm a father to a lot of girls. You know, when they're young, they love dad. They come running home, jump into your arms when you come home. They're so excited to be with you. It's so great to snuggle with them on the couch. Like, you know, there was all sorts of things I was getting back, right, mm. uh, in the relationship. But when they became teenagers and more independent and dad's an idiot who doesn't know what he's talking about and why does dad have rules and why are you constantly in my way and all of those different things, that was the real test of what sort of love I actually had for them. Because I, I'm going to be honest, there's times that I don't like them very much. They actually scare me a little bit, <laughs> you know, at, <laughs> at, at times. Yeah. I can't always predict their behavior, what they're going to do. And that's going to tell me about whether I love them. Because in the moment, I might be feeling a lot of stress around them or you know, dealing with them on a day-to-day basis might actually be more challenging than helpful to me. And in that moment, do I blame them? Do I shut down? Or in that moment, is that when I really engage them and love them dangerously, even at times when I know they think I'm an idiot and they're not really showing that love back? And, you know, those have been some of the most formative years of all the conflict mediations that I've done with Israelis and Palestinians and Northern Ireland, with Black Lives Matter and police officers. Some of the most challenging ones for me have been with my teenagers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I I love this. And Chad, I I want to ask you about the role of fear in this, this process, because that was one thing in your book that really, I guess... I wouldn't say it surprised me, but it was really intriguing to me how fear comes up in this process. And I, I'd like you to speak to that for a minute. Like, because even as you're talking about this right now, right, with whether it's with, you know, the Israelis and the Palestinians or your teenage daughter, right? Like all these different levels of conflict, the fear starts, right? When we start talking to ourselves, like, well, I can't, I can't see that in them. Like, I, I can't do that. That would be, again, dangerous. That would be a mistake. What is that fear? What's going on for us in that moment where we just can't uh, get to that place and see them, even if it doesn't require us to do anything different, even just internally? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, on a day-to-day basis, we're collaboratively problem-solving all day. Yeah. It's how we make it through life. And we're doing it with others Mm -hmm. constantly, even strangers at time, you know, we're doing it. What happens in conflict, and one definition I have for conflict is our inability to collaboratively problem-solve is that when we run across something that we can't solve together, it evokes a fear response in us. And the fear response says, oh no, this isn't working out. I'm not sure I'm going to get what I want. I'm not sure that you know what's happening here. And I either run from it, conflict avoidance, right? I fight and say, well, we're not going to be able to collaboratively solve this, so I'm going to get what, what I, I can yeah, get out of uh-huh. this, right? It, I don't want to lose, so I better win. Sometimes I will have it in my head as a personality as conflict accommodation that I'm just going to give in because that will make my partner like me. Mm -hmm. And what I'm actually afraid of in the conflict is that I'm going to come off as needy or demanding and they're not going to love me or like me anymore. And so my reaction to the conflict is just to give you everything that you want so that you'll, I'll be able to maintain that relationship with you, which is destructive in so many ways and creates all sorts of self-talk within us, which is unhealthy for us. And, and so all of those are, are scary things. Either I'm afraid of losing, or I'm afraid of not being loved or liked, or just in general, I'm afraid that conflict is going to tear us or destroy us, right? And probably my guess is, Again, I'm not a therapist, but we started this at a young age where we watched how our parents engaged in conflict. Mm. And if it was scary or destructive in any way, if it ended in yelling or doors being slammed or someone sleeping on the couch or not talking to each other for a while, we internalize all of that and we get this message that conflict is dangerous. Also, if our parents just ignore it, if everything is swept under the rug, if we never have uncomfortable conversations in our family, which is sometimes the pattern other people have, again, We think about it like it's a ticking bomb, and if I try to touch it and fix it, it's going to blow up in my face, so better just to Mm -hmm. ignore it, get as far away from it as I possibly can. And then we carry that with us into our adult relationships and our teenage relationships, and we start to 
wonder and fear when I'm not able to collaboratively problem solve with someone, what is going to happen to me? That's the first fear, right? And then the second fear is maybe this relationship just isn't going to work. And, uh, you know, on all the ramifications that come from that. And dangerous love is about reversing the question and asking not about self preservation, but it's about us preservation. It's about what will happen to us if I don't do this thing as opposed to what will happen to me. And us to me is a critical word because I think there's a whole category of conflictors out there that think that the, the appropriate answer is I just give in and give them whatever they want. That is what makes me a good person or a great member of this relationship is that I always give in. I always give my partner what they want. And that's such an unsustainable way to be in a relationship mm-hmm, with someone. Absolutely. And so I, so I have to be able to both hold on to what I need and what I want in a relationship while at the same time, see what they need and want and get creative about finding ways to solve that for both of us. And it's just impossible to do if I'm not seeing them as a person, if I'm operating on fear brain and have tunnel vision and I'm so worried about what's going to happen to me that I can't really think about anything else. It's going to not happen if I wait. We talk a lot in the book about turning first. Mm-hmm. And if I wait for them to be the first one to make the move, right? If I just wait and wait and wait and say, I'll change when they change. When they show that they're willing to give something that I'll give, I'll be waiting forever because, of course, they're probably saying something that's similar. All of those are sort of the obstacles that are in the way to getting back to really great collaborative problem solving. And of course, because those obstacles exist, I tell myself it's impossible. We'll never get there. There's no way that we're going to be making this happen. And so one of my strategies I'll just give away in the book is the conflicts get harder as the book goes on. I start with some simpler ones and they get harder. We start talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I understand that almost every reader is not going to be working as mediators in the Middle East. That's not the point. Mm -hmm. The point is for to pick something that I think everybody would agree is really complicated, really messy, and really hard and show how Israelis and Palestinians are finding ways to collaboratively problem solve in the hardest of environments. And then I saved what I, I feel was the best chapter and the hardest chapter for the very end of the book. My publisher, again, like told me, put the story at the beginning of the book. Nobody reads the end of books anymore. They read the first couple of chapters, they get it, they go on. And I I told him, no, it was really important to me to talk about the hardest conflict in my life, a conflict that's actually hard for me to talk about because of the way that I behaved and the way that I acted and how long it went on and the pain and misery that it caused me and, and my family. But I want to talk about it then because my guess is there's people that are reading this book that are getting to the end and saying the same thing. Yeah, I get it. I, you know, Maybe this will work with my teenagers or this person, but it's never going to work here and show you in a conflict that I thought was impossible, in a conflict that brought great pain to me, one with my father, how you choose love over fear. Reading the audiobook, even though I'd written it um, before, I break into tears and we decided just to leave it in there even as I'm reading it because just reading it again brought back some of the pain involved in it, but also some of the joy that comes when we come out the other end. And if nothing else, Jeff, I wrote the book to give people hope who feel like there is no hope, who feel like whatever it is that they're wrestling with or struggling with is impossible and nothing can change to say that actually there is hope and and things can change and it's going to take incredible amounts of courage and it's going to be hard and it may not happen overnight. It may take weeks or months or in the case of my father, you know, over a year. But if we practice this, it will change our world. And in doing so, it will have the effect of changing not just our world, but all the people in our life that we impact in a positive way. Wow, that's powerful. Chad, thank you. I'm excited to actually finish it and listen to that last story. I've got just a little bit left and I've not come on that story, but I'm going to start the book over as soon as I finish it. It's one of those that I want to spend some more time with. Where can people find you, Chad? At dangerouslovebook.com okay. is our website. All of the links to our social media, we're on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. You'll be able to find all of that um, there as well as uh, places uh, to order the book. It just sold out on Amazon, which is actually really cool that it exceeded our expectations of how it sold in the print copy, but you'll see there's a number of other places to buy it. So if you go over there, 
in the next few days. There, there are more books coming in. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I recommend the audiobook though. I do read it and um, yeah. I, I try to read it with the passion that I wrote it. Yep. And I think that that can be a fun way to sort of engage it as well. And uh, we also have a Dangerous Love podcast where I have guests several times a month that come and talk about very specific aspects of dangerous love. And so we just had on someone today from policing and sort of thinking about what this sort of looks like in relationships between police and community members. Uh, but we have it in parenting and in marriage and you know, different just experts come on. So if there's a specific area of dangerous love that you want a little bit more help on going over the dangerous love pod, you might be able to find an actual episode that just is speaking about marriage or just is speaking about parenting or just is speaking about relationship with my boss or what have you that might be helpful. Fantastic. So dangerouslovebook.com and they can find the podcast there as well. Chad, thank you for the great work that you're doing. Thank you for helping us find a better way to relate and to drop the fear and see people as people. It's definitely a life changer and I don't say that lightly. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I want to thank Chad for joining me on the Illuminate podcast. Wasn't that a fantastic interview? I hope you'll go back and listen to that again and also share it with your loved ones, share it with people that you connect with and let others know about his important work. I think everybody should have a copy of this book in their home. I also want to give you his website once again so that you can find him over there. He's got a podcast and he's got a quiz even that you can understand your own dangerous love conflict style. And there's lots of great resources on his website, which is dangerouslovebook.com. So go check that out and yeah, just access all those fantastic resources. So once again, thanks for listening to the Illuminate podcast. Feel free to leave a rating, a review of the podcast that helps other people find it. And hopefully this information and this content is making a difference in your life. Thanks for being here and I'll catch you on the next episode.